Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Fair trade doesn't have to be just something you talk about in social studies, that if you're talking about fair trade and climate change, you can talk about it in biology or in science. These are middle, middle year students made a presentation to the school board that I have to say was incredible, better than anything I could have ever done, put their heart and soul into it, and they were still voted down. One of the weaknesses in the work we do is that follow-up side. How do we support the issues that we believe in, and how do we support the champions that we work with? Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... And it divides the banana into slices. And the tiniest slice is what the banana farmer actually gets. And then the bigger slices are what the store gets, what the shipping company gets, what the various brokers get, you know, what the advertisers get. It's just that little, what I call the little black bum of the banana that represents what the actual producers get. By using this, these slices of banana. There's nothing like a fresh banana. And by fresh, I mean a banana that has ripened on its host plant. Most people in the global north never get to experience that uniquely sweet taste. A growing number of consumers, however, are developing an understanding of the economics behind the supply chain for bananas and other staple items like coffee, tea, sugar, and chocolate. With more informed shoppers comes the need to offer items with fair trade certification. Sacked Groves has been a fair trade and international development activist for over 50 years. He also co-edited the Fair Trade Handbook along with Gavin Friedel and Sean McHugh. Zach joined Ian to discuss the basics of fair trade, how to teach it in various settings, and why bananas are such a useful entry point into the world of fair trade. I first, I guess I can't really fully say met you, but became acquainted with you through the article that you wrote for issue number 115 of Green Teacher Magazine, which was from the winter of 2018, and you were wearing the infamous banana suit. Before we jump into the main part of the discussion, can you tell us a bit about this famous suit? Well, I think the um, the original effort to uh, make bananas fair trade was actually um, led by people in Great Britain. And one of the ways that they um, promoted this sort of thing was by actually creating a, a banana suit that people could wear. And actually, you can buy banana suits to wear for Halloween at many stores, but this was a fair trade certified banana suit. And... Uh -huh. um, I have a silly side, even in my old age, and so I um, volunteered to be the guy that showed up at different events, including, you know, at Manitoba Legislature or at um, various university locations or whatever, wearing it, kind of like people might show up uh, being a mascot of a hockey team or a football team. And I, I was amazed at how, not just how much fun it was for me, but how people really related to the fun side of fair trade. And um, so eventually we actually in, in, in Winnipeg, but I mean, they're available across the country, came up even with different sizes of banana suits so kids could wear them and et cetera. Anyway, at the national conference on fair trade, which was held in Winnipeg a few years ago, uh, we had arranged for a band to play in the evening and they showed up late. And so there was this sort of quiet time with hundreds of people waiting to do something. So I donned my banana suit and filled that extra time in. And uh, ever since then, that's what I've been associated with. It's been a staple. Well, we'll talk more about bananas later in the discussion. 
I think it makes sense to start us off because uh, our listeners may have varying levels of familiarity with fair trade. I think it's generally understood that paying a fair price to the producers on time and in full is fundamental to fair trade. Maybe somewhat less understood is that also deeply embedded in it is the upholding of high social and environmental standards. As this is the Environmental Education Podcast, can you walk us through the environmental side of fair trade? Sure. One of the problems with many of the crops that are produced that we end up using for like food or even clothing, so I'm thinking of coffee or cotton, are two of the most sprayed, you know, herbicidal kinds of crops. So, of course, people have made the effort through the organic movement to um, make these kinds of crops available without the sprays, the pesticides, the herbicides. So fair trade has done that as well. For instance, probably about 90% of fair trade coffee is also organic. So that's one side of it. The difference there is that you can buy organic tea or organic coffee, organic bananas, etc., but they don't have the labor standards. They don't have the social standards. So it's it's part of the equation, but not the not the whole thing. And the other side of it, of course, is all of us talk about these days is the is the climate change side. So hmm. the the chapter in the book about climate change by Monica Furl, um, she um, works with co-op coffees, and they bring they import coffee from Latin America into the States and into Canada. So she and her team will work with farmers who are growing, let's say, being coffee producers in Central and Latin and uh, South America in, in different ways. One is that there, there is this rust because of climate change that has appeared on coffee crops called Roja, R-O-J-A. So they so people lose their crops, so therefore they lose their income. So the fair trade system internationally um, makes funds available to make sure that those farmers don't lose their land and don't starve, etc. So so that's one environmental aspect. Another is that money that accrues through the fair trade system, because people do pay more for that product. So that money goes into research to um, either prevent or mitigate the effects of uh, climate change. So it, it might be um, uh, like a, an ag rep kind of person coming and doing training with people in, in a particular co-op around environmental issues. Um, you know, it, it, it might be different equipment being used that, you know, but organic. So yeah, it is, it is an important part and likely more important than it once was just because of the growing concern about climate change, but also the fact that more and more people accept and want um, organic products. Certainly. And there's also the biodiversity side of it. I mean, when I went to an organic coffee plantation in Costa Rica, it was not only an amazing coffee plantation, but the biodiversity of species there, particularly birds, was very impressive. I mean, there were all kinds of songbirds, you know, many of them, the birds that migrate north to Canada and the U.S. in the summertime. And a big part of that was how it was grown in this much more natural organic situation. And I think Monica described, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this, in the chapter that growing organic coffee is akin to staying healthy by eating a healthy diet and eating nutritious food, as opposed to a more responsive approach where you treat sicknesses with antibiotics. And I thought that was a really nice way to bring that sort of into people's lives. Yes. And um, yeah, I I remember one part of the chapter that was almost tear jerking where, where she was with the head of one of the co-ops they work with and his response to the work that she was doing as the um, kind of environmental head of their team was that um, of the companies they had dealt with previously that, that weren't fair trade, no one had ever really not just raised the concern about organics, but uh, had ever asked the community itself what it felt it needed. You know, they were there to buy your product at the cheapest possible price, and and that was as far as it went. Yeah, that certainly stood out, and I recommend that everybody read the entire book, but that chapter in particular had some really insightful passages in it. She's also an incredible speaker. I mean, if people, one of the things about a number of the of the authors is is just their um, 
their ability to put across their information in a way that anybody would want to listen to. Absolutely, and maybe could be fodder for a future episode. Mm -hmm. Something that really stood out for me in the forward to the book, just one page, very short, but very impactful for me. This was written by your co-editor, Sean McHugh, and he wrote that fair trade is an ideal that can cut across age, race, religion, and political outlook. And I think that stood out for me so much because we live in this incredibly polarized world, and anything that can be a source of uniting is music to my ears, music to many people's ears. So on a very practical, on-the-ground level, how can fair trade be just so uniting? Well, I'll give some, I'll give some examples or instances. And I agree, the, the world we live in today is, is very polarized, and um, people are often suspicious and, um, and, and have maybe really strong views of their own that may or may not stand the test of time. I mean, one of the issues that fair trade tackles is um, what is now called human rights due diligence, but a lot of it has to do with um, child labor. I'll, I'll tell you, when, I, when I'm in front of an audience, if I'm not getting anywhere, you know, I play the child labor card because it's pretty hard to find anybody who thinks that that's a good idea. Mm. Um, so really the impact on, um, on uh, communities in, in uh, the global south in, in various ways. And I, you've, you've mentioned you've traveled there. And uh, my wife and I were in Peru with a, with a group of fair trade activists a few years ago. And um, even before you get into child labor, we visited some communities that have been decimated by the, um, the trading system that we have in the world today, where basically farmers have given up and they and their families have, um, have moved to the city where they're not particularly better off. Young people don't see uh, farming as um, an object anymore, so th so they've, you know, the the communities are dying, which which will mean eventually that agriculture is going to start dying because people will not be growing the crops that we need because they can't make any money at it. And then you you add to that the fact that kids are out, you know, the chocolate bars, for instance, that uh, you buy in a conventional situation, are most often from Ivory Coast and West Africa, Ghana. And they're grown by kids. They're harvested by kids um, with huge um, amounts of injury and illness and uh, people not paid and people not fed, young people. And uh, so that they actually did a uh, kind of a promotion in, in Britain where people actually produced some chocolate bars and wrapped them in a wrapper that said, made with child labor and then tried to hand them out in i think Pic piccadilly square piccadilly circus and people really reacted like what what the heck are you giving us that is certainly um a uniting factor just that there are issues that everybody can relate to the other one is that it's a consumer issue and you know you can make you can make these issues political issues and of course that's when you start getting into some of the debates if if it appears as if oh well you're arguing that fair trade is socialism or capitalism or whatever, but it's a consumer issue. And all of us are consumers, no matter what our politics are. And um, if we don't change our consumer habits, we're going to perpetuate COVID, poor health around the world, pandemics. We're going to perpetuate climate change, which, I mean, I think trumps all of the others, no pun intended. We're going to um, perpetuate so many issues that everybody will agree need to be dealt with. So I, I think, um, like I see fair trade as a template for, because of the environmental side of it, because of the social side of it, the economic side of it, that studies have shown that communities in the global south that get into the fair trade system actually economically do better than they would if they'd stayed with the sort of free trade system. So in, in every way, it's going to um, improve, you know, and, and I've actually had the opportunity to speak to um, two cabinets in Manitoba, two government cabinets, an NDP one and a conservative one, which we have now. And both are on board. Both think fair trade is a great thing, maybe from different points of view, but they both see the need for a better economy in the world 
they both see the need that people who have a lot, which is us, do something to improve the lot of those who have less, which are people in the global south. So, you know, I, I, if you get the Conservatives and the NDP agreeing that fair trade is a good thing, it must be something we can all embrace. Absolutely. And I know you mentioned that in your chapter, chapter 20 in the book, and seeing from two different sides of the political spectrum agreeing on it. And as you say, maybe for different reasons, but hey, I mean, that that's the beauty of democracy is we come at things from different ways. I was also handing out free chocolate to everybody, so they probably, <laughs> they had to be nice. Absolutely. Have you ever had major skeptics who just weren't kind of buying what you were saying, but then they eventually came around? Well, one one area I found, like fair trade is an evolving movement. Mm. And I think, um, you know, the chapter in the book that was done about the small producers and the need to make fair trade more more inclusive, more less colonial, etc. Because a lot of a lot of these international development ideas, you know, from the NGO community, they still have their sort of paternalistic aspects to them. And um, so I think, you know, in in that sense, you know, the, the skeptics are on all sides of the issue. I was at a kind of a teacher's in service one day and I was I had a booth about fair trade and a, a teacher came up and just gave me such a hard time about fair trade, not from a kind of a right-wing perspective, but more from the other side. Well, fair trade isn't really making a difference and you're still telling people in, in developing countries what to do, etc. So I was able to sort of explain to that person, you know, when I found out that everything they had read about fair trade was like from 10 years ago, that things have changed and that things are better and that the sort of international board for fair trade, which is based out of Europe, now has half of the board is from the global south, etc. So I was able to show by by fact that that things are evolving and getting better. So in that sense, from one perspective, where people might think that fair trade is not effective, to show the roadmap that we're we're trying to get better, we're trying to be more inclusive, etc. The other one is that um, when I was working at this full time out of Winnipeg and and working with the um, the legislature, uh, which was very open to doing a lot of things. But I found that if you pushed too hard or asked for really big things, sometimes I, I got to see that um, sometimes a politician like a cabinet minister or a top bureaucrat, their eyes would actually glaze over. And I right. would know that you know this isn't going to happen. You know, that, you know, for instance, uh, Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries has been a leader in carrying fair trade certified wines and 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 other products way more than any other province i think some of the provinces now like ontario and uh, bc and others are starting to catch up but and quebec but they they the manitoba was the leader so i asked for that i met with the minister and you know they were very open to moving in this area and we and we've had a great relationship and uh, manitoba liquor and lotteries is actually a fair trade workplace but then I went and asked somebody who was in charge of the trade side, you know, what, what if we did, um, you know, um, a study to see to what extent our trade relationships with countries overseas are fair based on a set of criteria? And you could see the eyes start to glaze over like that was a huge mm-hmm. ask. Um, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably try to be more sneaky, like start <laughs> with something smaller. You know, uh, try, you know, see where that might, that kind of initiative might go. But sometimes, you know, you can't ask for the whole thing at once. Yeah, test the waters. Yeah. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. When crates of bananas arrive on the back of a delivery truck, it's a sea of green. 
Experienced handlers will also tell you that the odd scorpion finds its way into a load from time to time. So moving further into the book, early in the first chapter, you write that the book functions, has sort of four functions. It functions as a how-to, a what is, a how did it get that way, and a what should we do about it. And I thought that was a really ingenious way to frame it. And we've loosely talked about the what is. We'll get to the what should we do about it and the how-to, especially for educators. And though one would really have to read the entire book to intricately understand the how did it get that way, can you give us just a basic snapshot of the story of how our economic system got to a point that was not particularly fair and in many cases not fair at all in terms of trade. Sure. And and I and I would relate it also to the um one of the big issues, of course, in terms of people's discussion these days in Canada is our relationship with indigenous people. Yes. <clears throat> but that colonial system is global. And really the relationships that were created, if, if I dare call them relationships, going right back to the so-called age of discovery, you know, the 1492 mm -hmm. and Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And uh, we were in the business, when I say we, I, I wasn't that, not that old, but we were <laughs> in the business of um, extracting resources from these countries. The chapter in the book by Haroon is just in, in, and I've been actually teaching this colonial stuff that the, university level the last 10 years but I was still knocked back by how I don't know what to say but his chapter is just gut-wrenching and um, so we would go to um, let's say that what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC which is one of the poorest and most conflict-ridden and most beautiful countries in the world and we wanted their rubber out of their rubber trees and we would enslave the people and extract all the rubber for our own use and, and give them nothing back except pain. And it, it may not be as bad today, but we continue in an economic way to look at what we can get out of the deal and not what we can, you know, how to make it a fair relationship. So that the kinds of um, trade deals that exist put poorer countries at a disadvantage. And the, the people who produce the products that we need and want, cotton, coffee, I've had three cups today, as you can tell, um, <laughs> chocolate, you know, we, um, we don't give them, you know, we give them, they give us what we want, but we, they still are the poorest people on the planet. If you look at the United Nations Human Development Index, the countries that are giving us these tropical crops they're not being they can't be grown in in canada except maybe in a greenhouse but whether it's the cocoa products or or the coffee or or tea some of the tropical fruits etc the people producing those their countries are way down the list on the human development index and they themselves are living hand to mouth we'll get into bananas later but i when in peru we were told by people at a banana co-op that every time they sold a banana, they lost money, yeah. but they had to keep they had to keep selling their bananas because they had to keep paying off the people they had loaned money from in order to keep going. So you know it's a never-ending downward cycle. So you know this this colonial relationship that began 500 years ago or whatever continues today in another form. And I mean that sounds really like hardline political or whatever, but it's just the truth. It is. This is a bit bit of a side note, but I just read for the first time Robinson Crusoe, and mm. it encapsulates everything you've been talking about so unapologetically, and in no way is this a criticism of the author. It was a different time. I don't want to run the risk of looking at something from the 18th century through a 21st century lens, but it really paints a pretty stark picture of just how accepted slavery was if you were from the global north if you were from western europe it was just yeah of course i have slaves <laughs> it was difficult to read on one hand but i'm glad i read it just to bring it more into focus i think i don't know have you ever read robinson crusoe uh i i think i did some years ago and 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 i know what you're saying and 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 actually i've experienced some of this not so much in latin america but um um, I've been to um, East Africa a number of times because um, 
I've worked for international aid organizations and I can understand why people fall into that colonial mindset even yeah. now because you get treated like royalty because you're white and it helps to be old. And, um, you know, I found that, you know, they would always feed me first and other people later. And, you know, you get the first choice of things. If you go to a community where there's, you know, one chair, you get to be the one that sits on it. When you meet young women, they actually, when they, they shake your hand, they actually curtsy. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's easy for your ego to accept all of that. And, and of course, they're, they're kind of brought up in that old British system to a certain extent. So they, they still think that way. And so, you know, it's a, culturally, it's really hard to break out of that stereotype even today. And of course, this leads to so much guilt, and it's something that I think a lot of people are trying to grapple with. And we talk about this a lot in the realm of climate change education, that guilt often leads to disengagement, and it's not a particularly effective tool. Yet at the same time, we can't ignore things that have happened and that are happening. Do you have any insights about processing that guilt and using it in a productive way? Yeah, I, I love to talk about disempowerment because I think a lot of our best, you know, our best speakers, the people that are really passionate, unfortunately, they lead with the negative. And so yeah. the people sitting in the audience are thinking, well, there's nothing I can do about that. So um, we had a speaker at the University of Winnipeg a few years ago, and he just, he was very charismatic. But when it was over and it was coffee time and everybody was standing around and visiting, this is pre-COVID, People, I could hear people saying, well, so much for that, you know, like obviously fair trade isn't going to really change anything, so why bother? And uh, so, you know, that's a continuing lesson that we need to find ways to, I would say, start where people are at. So, so kind of like think about your audience and make sure that you're offering them doable alternative activities. So, I mean, in fair trade, you know, um, and don't hide the negative, but give them the positives that if, you know, every time you buy a bag of fair trade coffee, you are supporting a community somewhere. You're also supporting a very ethical company here in Canada that's selling it. You know, things that people, you know, I, what, what do they call that? Global thoughts, local actions. So mm -hmm. what can you do? Like, I remember going in, in my work world way back when, and apartheid existed in South Africa, we would go out and talk about the situation there. And then we would sort of break into groups and people would talk about what they could do about it. One of the things that they thought they could do about it was recycling. So you ask, well, how can recycling do anything about apartheid in South Africa? But what they were saying was, give me stuff to do that I can do myself locally with my family, you know, and I can't go and be a guerrilla fighter in South Africa, but I can recycle. So I think we need to think about how to how to empower people by giving them things that that are realistic that they can do and then stepping it up like so if your family is drinking fair trade coffee can you get your workplace to drink fair fair trade coffee and can you uh, go to the restaurant you usually go locally and get them to carry fair trade coffee so you you know can you get your church or your mosque or your synagogue or you know to to do that you know so think about how you can make a bigger and bigger impact but that it is realistic that you can you can do it the flip side of that is that you also get people blaming the victim so i find that sometimes when you go out and talk to people about their the need to support people in the global south or the need to support fair trade you get people kind of putting up their hand and saying well yeah but isn't that all like a scam and you know, those poor people, yeah. aren't they yeah. actually all like um, lazy and dumb? And and so, you know, there's there. And I think that sometimes is also a sign of guilt that people are trying to find excuses for why they haven't taken action or, you know, it's 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 sort of denying that there's a problem or the problem is actually somebody else's problem, not yours. So you also have to be ready for that. And, and but I, in a I think in a sensitive, supportive way. You don't want to kick people out of the tent because the tent is small enough as it is. Yeah, and we see that with climate change. The victim blaming is, well, why don't they do more about it? Why don't those countries in the global south so affected by it do more about it? 
it's I think an easy road to go down, but a very inequitable one. That came across after the cop. Oh yeah. Thing that oh yeah, it's all India's fault, and mm-hmm. and there were some wonderful spokespeople that came out. We we tend to watch BBC News here at home because uh, actually we have a daughter living in England working for a climate change group, so she pointed us in the direction of really good spokespeople who can answer those questions about consumption and uh, and the role of uh, developing countries. So we're armed and ready. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Mm-hmm. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. While it's helpful to keep an eye out for scorpions, the most important visual in a bunch of bananas is a sticker indicating fair trade certification. Moving to the education side, you wrote chapter 20 of the book, which is focused on education and advocacy for social change. And there you note, and I'm quoting, that fair trade is a topic that catches the attention and passionate support of students. So speaking of empowerment, I think this is an excellent vector for that. Yet, you also note in the chapter, there's only so much that can be done by having a guest speaker visit a school. So how can fair trade be woven more intricately into the fabric of schooling so that it's not just somebody parachutes in, talks about fair trade, gets people excited, and then the momentum fades with time. How do we prevent that? Right. Yeah, and it's interesting how the momentum fades because quite well, I've had experiences where um, the teachers invited me into the classroom, introduced me, and then that teacher has left. Yeah. So obviously they're going for a smoke break or something. And, uh, or I had one teacher actually sit at the back of the room and read the newspaper while I spoke. So kind of sending out a message that, um, you know, this really isn't all that important. But I, I think it's, um, you know, so we all have those bad experiences, but, or where you know that a, a class really isn't like prepared. They know that there's somebody coming to speak, but they don't know anything about what it'll be about. So, yeah, I think, I think we need to find ways to um, get schools and students engaged, as you say, in the long term. And I had an aha moment a few years ago when these programs were developed for fair trade schools, fair trade campuses, et cetera, where these institutions can actually qualify to be designated as fair trade schools, let's say. And, and it's been extremely, especially campuses, has been very, very successful across the country through the Canadian Fair Trade Network, but also schools. And in Manitoba, we had several that we worked with because then actually they have something to be proud of. For instance, then the staff room is serving fair trade, you know, coffee, tea, sugar, etc. And um, any of the events that go on at the school, like, you know, basketball tournaments or badminton or whatever, if there's going to be refreshments available, they're fair trade. So, you know, making it part of the fabric so that, you know, and having a sign up at the front door that says, you know, we are a fair trade school as of 2017 or whatever, you know, just so that it's, it isn't just something that, you know, is done in the blush of the moment and then doesn't continue. Also because it needs to be renewed on a, on a yearly basis. So, you know, the network comes back to, to each individual institution and says, you know, are you keeping up with this, et cetera. So that's, that's on maybe the life of the school in terms of the actual courses being taught. I mean, one of the things that when I get a chance to speak in a, in a staff meeting or in, a, in a, an in-service in a division or something is, is that fair trade doesn't have to be just something you talk about in social studies, that if you're talking about fair trade and climate change, you can talk about it in biology or in science. If you're, you know, if you're doing math, you can 
come up with some um, consumer math fair trade kinds of, of things, you know, it's so getting, and, and there are some teachers that do that. Obviously there's more work that needs to be done. I have a son and daughter-in-law in Toronto who work as high school teachers and they, um, they certainly promote these kinds of things both in the classroom and, um, you know, institutionally. And they also talk about, you know, the challenges that quite often, you know, some teachers like to deliver the same um, information every year and um, they're not necessarily looking critically at issues in the world, etc. I'm not, I don't get as frustrated as my son and daughter-in-law because I'm not the one doing that. But so we talk about how can you bring a fresh perspective to this? How can you make it positive? Because quite often I think teachers who resist these things are partly resisting the negativity that comes with talking about social issues. Of course. Obviously, each school board is different, but what are some of the institutional barriers that your son and daughter-in-law have faced? Um, well, my son is actually a um, department head, and he finds that, the, so in the department, he has to carry this sort of mantle of leadership of trying to get, so he's trying to get people to look at a, a range of issues around Indigenous issues. Um, uh, he actually has put together a course on um, on genocide and the Holocaust. So, you know, looking at sort of taking a step forward in terms of dealing with some of these things. And he certainly has found that um, there is resistance. I mean, people, people are working hard to be teachers. They may not be in a position or may not feel they're in a position to add too much to what they already do. So um, we were actually visiting not too long ago and had a chance to go with him to um, meet a teacher and who is Indigenous and who is doing some very exciting work in the area of gardening and food production right in the high school and using a lot of traditional ideas and whatever. Very exciting to see this happening even though it's kind of looking backward in some ways in history, it's looking forward in the kind of relationships we need to have and the kind of, in, the kind of environment we need to have. So, I mean, the other one is that when you look at the upper echelons of the education system, whether it's the education minister or even the principal of your school or whatever, they may not be involved in the content side of things. They're sort of trying to hold the system together in the way they think it should be. So it's sometimes hard for people kind of caught in the middle to move things forward. Yeah, and the issue, of course, there is you can have these champion teachers, but if they move to a different school or they retire, then it might just stop in entirely. All the momentum they've built up can stop. I mean, it seemed to me that getting this into teacher training and administration training programs would be an essential part of ensuring that this is more embedded and that the momentum continues even if a champion teacher retires. Have you done any work with faculties of ed for in-training teachers? Yes, and there's lots of enthusiasm there, but of course then the teachers head out to wherever they get a job and then they, you know, they may be able to bring some of that to their work, we hope so. I mean, you, you raise a really interesting question just thinking about one particular um, school division that I worked in and I was very active in the school and in the division I got to know the um, the superintendent and the assistant superintendent you know on a first name basis the principals many of the teachers but and and, and then people start retiring or moving to new schools or taking on new positions and um, you see you know the momentum maybe being lost you might, you know, so you may be dealing with a certain superintendent who's really excited about social issues and uh, and sort of global and local citizenship of students in their division. And then they move on and you show up as you often do and say, well, here I am, you know, Zach, the fair trade guy. And they say, oh, we, you know, we don't do that anymore. So, you know, it is it is a challenge or another division that I connected with where they had um sustainable development as part of their mission statement. But when it came to actually endorsing fair trade, they voted it down. Really? And it was, and the students, these were middle, middle year students made a presentation to the school board that I have to say was incredible, better than anything I could have ever done, put their heart and soul into it. And they were still voted down. 
uh, even though the mission statement would seem to be, well, this is, this is a no-brainer. So these things happen. You have to be persistent and, uh, and you have to um, build relationships. One of the things that I've done is follow the support of teachers to wherever they go. So, you know, somebody who might be the principal in one school suddenly becomes the assistant superintendent in another school division. So you keep those contacts going. Um, um, I'm, I'm a strong advocate of relationship building, like long-term relationship building. Yeah. And, not just, and not just in the workplace, but I mean, you know, pre, pre-COVID, happy to meet people in a coffee shop if they don't want, you know, if they want to get out of their school or whatever. Yeah, it's, it, it's a challenge for sure. Uh, people would probably have the same thing in other institutions like churches where the minister might be super into, you know, social issues or global issues, and then they move on. And the one that comes along is great too, but they're really into visiting seniors and hospitals and, and into, you know, really good uh, sermons on Sunday. And um, so it's just a different good person. And uh, so I think it's, that's where you can't stop. You can't assume that, you know, you've got it done. You have to do the follow-up. And I, and I, and I know from years of experience that one of the, one of the weaknesses in the work we do is that follow-up side. How do we support the issues that we believe in and how do we support the champions that we work with? That's a call to action to everybody to ponder on that question and discuss in your own circles, you know, how can that follow-up manifest in, in real life? That's a, a really important point. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. It might just be that a bunch of bananas, or even a single banana, is one of the best tools that an educator can use to introduce their students to the concept of fair trade. Let's finish off by talking about bananas. You've already talked a bit about your experience visiting a banana plantation in Peru and some of the issues associated with that. There's a great chapter in the book. I mean, they're all incredibly insightful. This one stood out because I think there's a lot that you can do from an educational perspective with bananas because they're so front and center in the lives of folks in the global north. This is chapter 10. It's called The Only Banana You Should Buy. It's written by Jenny Coleman and Madison Hopper of Equifruit. And one of the points they make is that a banana is a known value item or a KVI. And I don't want to get too much into terminology, but I think this is important because bananas kind of serve as a bit of a barometer for price fluctuations. People buy bananas so frequently that when they see a change in price, it really makes an impact on them, which is why we see bananas so prominently displayed in marketing efforts and this was something that i think i intrinsically knew but it was important to read about that and be like yeah that is totally true you wrote this article in our winter 2018 issue of green teacher issue number 115 and you included an activity in that called slicing the banana right i love the activity it's simple it's easy to use you can find it in our archive can you kind of walk us through 
that activity and other ways that you can use bananas as a way to bring this into the classroom and into other educational settings. Yeah, I'm really glad you liked that chapter. I mean, it, it's a chapter that I call shameless promotion. The people, <laughs> yeah. the people that wrote it are crazy enthusiastic people. It's a company, Equifruit, which is actually um, completely all the staff are women young women. In fact, one of, one of the, Jenny's birthday today, I think. And yeah. um, one of them, Jenny Coleman, actually bought the company. It had started but the, and was doing well, but the people decided they wanted to get out of it. And she bought it and she's taken it to another level for sure. And um, they are, I mean, if you look at any social media, <clears throat> they absolutely dominate in the amount of stuff that they do to promote their products, which are uh, becoming so popular, particularly, I think, in Ontario, that uh, a number of um, the sort of organic and, um, you know, chains in, in Ontario are now actually dropping all their bananas except the Equifruit ones. So they're, they're doing extremely well. And the uh, exercise that we had in that article, basically, you have a banana, so, but use a big banana, like a, a poster banana, hmm. and it divides the banana into slices. And the tiniest slice is what the banana farmer actually gets. And then the bigger slices are what the store gets, what the shipping company gets, what the various brokers get, you know, what the advertisers get. It's just that little, what I call the little black bum of the banana that represents what the actual producers get. And as I said earlier, the, the came came home to us when we were in Peru and, and they, they said, you know, like until we got into the fair trade system, we lost money every year selling bananas. And in fact, some years, you know, they, they actually didn't get paid at all because maybe something happened to the bananas en route or something. And then the people just refused to pay them. So there wasn't even kind of insurance or, or assurance that they would be paid. So by using this, these slices of bananas, you can really get a good discussion going, not just about bananas, but it's sort of a KVI in the sense that you can talk about any product or you can talk about life in terms of like who gets the biggest slices of the of the benefits. And you can also wear a banana costume, which is fun. Um, of course. Yeah, so that's, that's important. The um, thing that people don't often realize in Canada, because we sell so many different kinds of apples here, you know, you go into any store and there's just like six or eight or 10 different kinds of apples, but bananas are actually the most popular fruit in Canada, and it depends on whether you think a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable, but mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a close one. But uh, apples are not the most, so that's partly why it's a, a KVI. I had a, somebody visiting from Africa and took him into, a, into a, I think, a Sobeys or something, and, and he was remarking on how many different kinds of apples that were there. And I said, yeah, but when, when I was in Africa and I'm in, um, in Tanzania, I believe at the time, and, and went into a, one of their markets, I was amazed at how many different kinds of bananas there are, different sizes, different, you know, um, different tastes, you know, different levels of sweetness or whatever. So I think you can work with bananas in part because it's um, it really is something that is very, very popular. One of the things we did in one particular school division where they were having a division wide in service, which not only included teachers and, and, and um, administration, but also included like bus drivers and um, representatives of students from all the schools. So there's like, I think 750 people there or something is we got, because it was being hosted by a school that had a cafeteria and a kitchen, we had them actually make like a thousand fair trade banana chocolate muffins to serve Ooh. at breakfast with fair trade coffee. And we had some of the students get up and make a presentation about fair trade right at the start of the day and, and sort of introduce these muffins and the coffee and the concept while people were, you know, having this kind of breakfast. And then again, a, there was a break later. So and that was very powerful. So that's that's one thing people could do. One of the challenges is that uh, fair trade bananas are available in like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, maybe now in places like Calgary, but, you know, pretty hard in some of the more, you know, remote or not as populous places to actually find them in the stores, although we're trying our best, but you can order them from Equifruit or Discovery Organics on the West Coast or other places. 
So you can actually bring in the bananas by the case if you want to. Watch out for scorpions, um, <laughs> which seem to hide out in them. So, th I mean, and then there are a number of ways that, um, besides that idea of making muffins, where you can where you can promote and educate around around bananas. But it's something that people really really relate to. And you can look at it historically that the banana companies like, you know, the Chiquitas and the Doles and whatever, and the kind of colonial history that they had in um, in Latin America, where they basically took the place of government and ran the countries. And that's where you get the expression banana republic. So you can actually trace the history of our colonial relationship with these countries through the banana. Well, for anyone listening who's wondering what entry point to use for talking about fair trade. I think bananas are the way to go. I like to say that it's very appealing. Oh, I see. There has to be a good nature pun in every episode and it has to come organically. And I even say that honestly. Ooh. So I'm very glad that you ended with that. I was going to use low hanging fruit, but we've used that in other episodes. So well done. That was, a, that was a, yeah, and, and the bananas hang upside down. Ah, <laughs> Well, that is a fine way to end up on. This, is, this has been really illuminating. And again, I encourage folks to read the book and access the book, The Fair Trade Handbook. You hopefully should be able to see it in your local bookstores or order it from your local bookstore. It's incredibly insightful. It's a great tool to have on the educator's bookshelf. Zach Gross, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Whether you have a real banana or simply an image of one, you will be well equipped to at least start an exploration of fair trade with your learners. And even though you might not get to try a truly ripe banana anytime soon, knowing that the producers of the fruit in your hand are receiving their fair share of the profits tastes just as sweet. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. So we both entered this with a pun in the shoot, ready to go. I was going to say, because bananas are such a ubiquitous part of our lives, they're sort of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to fair trade. And that was supposed to be the big moment, but oh, I'm glad yeah. that you usurped my position. That, that was great. I could have said that bananas bring up a bunch of issues. That is also a good one. There's so much you can do with bananas. They're one of yeah. the great, like, fertile grounds for puns. I thought I'd slip it in.